Welcome to the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center Equity Spotlight Podcast. This podcast series will feature the center's equity fellows, national scholars from North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, Minnesota, Iowa, Missouri, Wisconsin, Illinois, Michigan, Indiana, and Ohio who are working to advance equitable practices within school systems. Each episode will focus on a topic relevant to ensuring equitable access and participation in quality education for historically marginalized students, specifically in the areas of race, sex, national origin and religion, and at the intersection of socioeconomic status. Hello everyone, my name is Dr. David Hernandez-Saka, and I'm an assistant professor at the University of Northern Iowa. I have with me today two amazing colleagues, um, Shireen Ekhtar and Joyce Levingston. Um, I've known Joyce um, for about a year now, and um, we will talk about um, her son, Cedric, um, who I had a pleasure of meeting, um, who came to one of the courses that I taught here at UNI on learning disabilities, emotion, and culture. And um, I've had a chance to have Joyce as um, my grad student there. And we immediately clicked and became friends and comrades. Um, and um, Shireen Ekhtar is um, a uh, grad student of mine as well. And um, we had a um, opportunity to co-teach last semester and we're co-planning um, this semester um, within our Department of Special Ed um, introductory courses for our teacher candidates here. And today's podcast is called Using Positionality to Amplify a Black Mother's Voice. Um, and um, I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Okay, so I will begin. Thanks for the introduction, uh, Dr. David. Uh, I'm talking about my son, Cedric. So I just wanted people to imagine um, trying to help your child, but you aren't able to. And you're trying everything in your might to help them and you're just not able to help them. And it's not because of you don't have the money. It's not because you don't have the time. It's not because you don't have the resources, but it's because of um, a larger system that is actually built against not only you, but uh, your child as well. So um, Cedric, he, and just some backstory, um, Cedric is the youngest of my four children. Uh, he attended the same elementary school that I went to, that his three sisters went to as well, um, that all my siblings attended. And so there was a lot of trust built up uh, in this school that he attended. Um, just to let you know a little bit about Cedric as well, 
basically, he started struggling from the very first day that he entered into school. Uh, people often ask me, did Cedric go to daycare or um, did he go to preschool? And that answer is yes, Cedric did go to daycare from the time he was, you know, about four weeks old. And he also did attend um, preschool prior to going to school as well. Uh, I never had any problems or issues with uh, either one of those. But um, from the first day of kindergarten, Cedric seemed very uh, gloomy when it was time to walk into the school building. And I just remember the first day, the principal and I kind of carrying and, you know, him into the school building together. Um, over the course of the next three years or four until he became, you know, got into third grade, uh, me and Cedric Sr. had a lot of phone calls from the school or a lot of times where we had to go up to the school to help Cedric or to intervene in something that was going on. So um, a lot of times the school would do things like just call us and say, hey, you know, we can't get him to calm down or Cedric is crying or Cedric is not listening um, or just always questioning basically what is wrong with your child. And so we would do all of the things that um, the school would suggest for us to do. Uh, we took him to the doctor. We put him in therapy. We put him in behavioral therapy, play therapy. Um, and one of the hardest things that I've had to do as a mom is give my child a medication that, in my opinion, um, was just very scary to do or that I felt that he didn't need. But the school suggested and also um, our family doctor suggested that he tried uh, ADHD medication. And I think this was to get him to sit calmly in class uh, during the day. Well, I fought for about a year and, um, you know, we can only miss so much work and only leave work early so many times. And we were doing that about four days out of the five work week, um, you know, the work days of the week. And so finally I gave in and I allowed Cedric to take uh, a medication for ADHD. So after a couple months of doing so, um, quickly began to realize that Cedric's behavior was not changing even on the medication. So that's something that was discontinued and uh, we would still get these phone calls. And I just remember one time a teacher asking if he was disrespectful at home. <coughs> Excuse me. And when I asked her exactly what she meant by that, she stated, well, he won't stand for the Pledge of Allegiance. And I just remember looking at her face and she seemed so upset by that. And so when I asked Cedric why he didn't stand for the um, Pledge of Allegiance, he had responded to me that it was something that just wasn't for him. Cedric would also write in a journal um, to communicate with me because sometimes when we picked him up and he would just be crying, we just feel so bad for him that we didn't bring up what was going on and we just didn't talk about it. And uh, he would write down things like they wanted me to touch other people's ears or 
they wanted me to hold hands with someone. And Cedric just, you know, had a hard time wanting to do these things. And I think that largely what we ended up finding out is that, you know, they had created through rumors, they had created a label uh, for my son. And um, through some of his behaviors from him having some, uh, you know, anxious moments at school, they would describe him as, you know, violent and um, or as, you know, disruptive. And these labels kind of stuck with him and the rumors spread throughout the teachers at the school. And I know that because when he got into third grade, that is when the teacher had um, emailed me the first week of school and said, you know, I know that you guys have been struggling for years. What can I do to help? And so I finally responded back, what type of help is there? Like, what do you do for these students? I know my son is, I know this isn't situational. Like, what can we do? And so that's when we started talking about having him um, go into special education. And uh, which at first it sounded great to me because I'm thinking, great, my son is in a small classroom. I don't have to worry about, you know, getting the phone calls. I don't have to, you know, worry about maybe him being anxious or him having to do all these other things. And so uh, before we even had an IEP meeting, they actually moved him into the special education classroom um, immediately. So to me, it's something that maybe they had already in the back of their mind hoped for. Um, but I also had got a personal message from uh, one of the educators that worked there that said that she went into the teacher's lounge and she heard I was in the office. So she was going to come and say hi to me. And when she listened to the conversation that they were speaking about my son and that they were calling him things like disruptive and aggressive and violent. And I think that those rumors created a barrier uh, for my son to have the type of education that my daughters had. And that was just having friends, um, making friends, and also being in a space where they weren't like policed. My son was very much over-policed, over-watched by educators that didn't even have him as a student. Um, he would always be watched if someone saw him in the hallway, like going to use the restroom or going to get a drink. I got a call one time saying that he splashed water on another student when he was going to get a drink at the drinking fountain. And I'm thinking, my goodness, my son has no friends at school. Um, he's never been able to have a friend. He's in fourth grade. Maybe him splashing water at the drinking fountain is you know, his way, if nothing else has worked, you know, maybe this is his way of just playing because that's what kids do. They play. Um, once I brought up race as uh, a reason why Cedric was being treated the way he was treated, then everything just went downhill. Um, my parental participation was seen as me being aggressive. Uh, they would try to police tone me um, in our meetings all of a sudden. They uh, wanted to say that, um, you know, just the way that they received my parental participation had changed a lot. And 
they, you know, highly displayed uh, white fragility. And I would tell them this, like, I am being met with white fragility. Now that I'm bringing up race and, you know, um, pointing out the uh, systemic and institutionalized racism that is happening, my son not uh, allowed to, you know, embrace his culture at this school. He couldn't dance. He couldn't rap. They would say that he was mumbling if he was rapping, even though he was, you know, involved in hip hop literacy in the summertime um, in the in the school education system that was close to ours, that was more diverse, Cedric would be involved in these things. And the school system that was uh, predominantly white uh, would have an issue with that. So it's just been a struggle. And I remember when he was in third grade, he missed 80 days of school. And here where we live, that's illegal. I never got a notice. I never, um, and this is before he had an IEP. Uh, however, I had a child in high school who would skip school sometimes, and I would get a threatening letter saying that my child was truant, my child, I would have to pay a fine. And this is how I really began to realize, like, they don't want my son in the school system, and they care about children um, differently. So I feel like Cedric just had a big target on him because he was a black boy who loved being a black boy and um, loved, you know, dancing, rapping, making beats, um, football, basketball, and uh, maybe did have some issues with uh, school-induced anxiety. We um, took him to some highly uh, professional people and got him evaluated because they're constantly telling us something's wrong with him. And those were the results that he had school-induced anxiety. And I think that came over a time of, like I said, him just being overly judged and um, labeled at the school. So it's been quite the experience. Thank you so much, Joyce. Thank you so much for sharing your uh, your story with us. I think it's extremely important for, you know, as a society, for us to listen to the voices um, of all of us who are being affected by the system. So thank you so much for sharing your story. Um, I think some of the things that you shared and I, I would like to highlight for all of us um, are really, you mentioned that Cedric was placed in a special education classroom before the first IEP meeting. That right there is going against IDEA, which is Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, even if we are thinking, when we are thinking about providing resources to children before, um, you know, when we are making decision to uh, placement decisions for students. I think that there is a parental participation um, violation of their right to participate in the IP meeting and a decision was being made for Cedric before um, you sitting in that meeting and sharing your concerns, listening to your voice. Um, one of the other issues I think you brought in, which is very timely and it's very important, is the issue of disproportionality. And there has been a huge, um, there is some literature that speaks about this. Um, that students of color, by disproportionality, I mean when students of color are overrepresented within certain special education categories. And uh, literature suggests that 
um, black students, black male students are overrepresented within um, the categories of emotional behavior, quote unquote, disorder. And uh, Latino students are overrepresented within quote unquote, learning disability categories. So race is linked with all of that. So you are right on it when you share that you did feel that probably his race was coming in when decisions were being made for him uh, or when rumors were spread about him. It was definitely uh, through that racial paradigm lens as well. And I think um, one of the other things that I really want to comment on is what as educators we can do. Like we all work in, in the school system, uh, be it higher education or be it, uh, you know, K to 12. I think as educators, one of the big, big things, understanding and knowing what is our positionality within the system, where do we stand in the system, not only as being a teacher, but also being which race we belong to, which, um, which, which identities we carry in the system that may privilege us or may um, you know, disadvantage us. And when we are making decisions for our students, are we thinking from those positionalities? What, what hidden or uh, master narratives do we carry in our, in our hearts and minds about all the different, you know, for example, in this situation, I'll say races in the system. So I think as educators, we need to be aware of what literature is suggesting, and we need to be aware of listening to parents' voices and listening to students' voices. Um, being aware of uh, literature, when I say that, I mean being aware of that students of color are being overrepresented in certain special education categories, as I just mentioned. So when we are making referrals or when we are making decisions around quote unquote the subjective special education categories, we need to really account for our individual sometimes biases as well based off of how we how we understand the culture, how we understand different races, how we what what um, point of views we are bringing in that might affect our students in the longer run when we are making decisions for them. So I think it's uh, wrapping it up. It's extremely important to include parent voice. It's extremely important to listen to what they have to share because ultimately they're the ones who are spending most of their time with the student. And I think at the same time, it's extremely important for us as educators to come up with, to come with our uh, to to align with the parents and it goes vice versa we need to we need parents when they share their stories when they bring their concerns so that we can work in collaboration for all our students and not not buy into sometimes our own personal biases and hidden you know uh, sources of information that we bring in the system or we enter the system with so i think um, yeah thank you so much again for sharing your story Um, thank you, Joyce, so much for your story and um, for sharing about your experiences um, as a Black mother in our educational system, because historically, um, the discourses of schooling and special education have resisted such analysis around race and disability. And um, I'm reflecting as a teacher educator here at the University of Northern Iowa that it is so important that our pre-service and in-service teachers and all stakeholders really 
take in your story and the struggles that you have gone through. And even in the opening, in you sharing those, I loved the way you framed them, not as being um, located in Cedric or in you. And I will even go further and say uh, in the Black community or in um, Black, Indigenous, and people of color communities because of the power relations that have been underscored since the beginning of our nation, I think that historical consciousness is so important for all stake stakeholders to realize regarding the way in which interactions get played out in the life chances for Black, Indigenous, and people of color youth. And right now, um, Shireen and I and Joyce have really um, worked together to bring to our pre-service teachers here at UNI Joyce's story. And I'm so um, glad that we're doing it within this podcast so it can um, reach audiences across the United States. And one thing that Joyce brought about was this notion of parental participation. And since the we have federal laws around principles of idea where there is zero reject um, evaluation, free appropriate public education, the least restrictive environment, procedural safeguards. And the last one is parental participation and how you experienced the educational system, Joyce, was really against the law. But we want to make sure we also train our teachers and our um, and think about as audience members listening today that what's institutionalized oftentimes did not take into account Black, Indigenous, and people of color's voices about what has been um, written into the law. And I think for implications, that's something um, I look forward to. I know that a lot of my colleagues look forward to re-feeling, rethinking, redefining, revaluing um, Black, Indigenous, and people of color's voices about what has been institutionalized. Because if we don't, we will run the risk of reproducing dominant ideologies that are based on white and ability supremacy. And so I think it's really important to talk about the moral and spiritual dimension of being an educator uh, that really connects back to what Shireen was talking about and what you were illuminating for us. Um, Joyce, regarding how you felt and how Cedric felt 
regarding um, your interactions with the educational system. And so this is just the beginning of a larger conversation that we are also having as a nation and um, internationally around Black Lives Matter. So thank you for your time and energy. I really appreciate um, this time to feel and think together. Yeah, and thank you for, um, you know, thank the both of you for engaging in the conversation. And I look forward to um, more discussions. Cedric's story, uh, like I said, now he's in fifth grade. So there's a lot to Cedric's story um, that I believe we have to share with others. And, uh, you know, hopefully with our next talk, we can um, get into more of discussing uh, parental participation and more uh, properties of whiteness and white fragility and white privilege and what that looks like within the education system as well. Thank you. Yeah, I agree. And thank you both for coming together and having this discussion. And Joyce, thank you so much again for sharing your story because I think it's extremely important um, for all of us. And uh, thank you, Dr. David and Saka for bringing us all together to discuss something that is very timely and very important and historical. And uh, we need to be counter-narrating the system sometimes. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center. To find out about other Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center podcasts and other resources, visit our website at www.greatlakesequity.org. To subscribe to a podcast, click on the podcast link located on the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center website. The Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center a project of the Great Lakes Equity Center at Indiana University is funded by the U.S. Department of Education to provide technical assistance, resources, and professional learning opportunities related to equity, civil rights, and systemic school reform throughout the 13-state region. The contents of this presentation were developed under a grant from the U.S. Department of Education, S004D11002. However, these contents do not necessarily represent the policy of the U.S. Department of Education, and you should not assume endorsement by the federal government. This podcast and its contents are provided to educators, local and state education agencies, and or non-commercial entities for the use for educational training purposes only. No part of this recording may be reproduced or utilized in any form or in any means, electronic or mechanical, including recording or by any information storage and retrieval system without permission in writing from the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center. Finally, the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center would like to thank Indiana University School of Education, as well as Executive Director, Dr. Kathleen King-Torius, Director of Operations, Dr. Sina Skelton, Associate Director of Engagement and Partnerships, Dr. Tiffany Kaiser, and Instructional and Graphic Designer, Dr. Jasur Dagli, for their leadership and guidance in the development of all tools and resources to support the region.